Hello and welcome to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. I'm Ashley Nickel with the Packer and PMG, and today we bring you a conversation between our editor-in-chief, Tom Karst, and Desmond O'Rourke, an economist and longtime Apple industry observer. O'Rourke is also the founder and CEO of Bellrose Inc. Tom and Desmond discuss the changes in the Apple industry over the last 50 years and what opportunities and challenges lay ahead. Without further ado, here's their conversation. This is Tom Kars, editor of The Packer, and I'm visiting this afternoon with Desmond O'Rourke, CEO of Bellrose Incorporated in Pullman, Washington. And Desmond, we've uh, talked a lot over the years about apples and other uh, produce-related issues, so uh, good to visit with you this afternoon. Good to talk to you, too. Yeah. You know, Desmond, talk about your background. I know you were from, did I, am I right that you grew up in Belfast, Ireland? or what? No, I, well, I grew up in the north of Ireland, went to... Uh, did my first undergraduate degree in Belfast, and then switched to a business degree in Dublin before coming to the UC Davis for a PhD. So I'm probably overeducated for any job. Well, very impressive, very impressive. And so you uh, you got a PhD, and then you plugged into uh, Washington State at that point, right? Is that where you went? came to Washington State University uh, in 1970, and uh, my department chair said, you're going to work on apples, and uh, my, my very first uh, uh, assignment was to do a cost study of uh, apple packing, which hadn't been done before, and that was, that was my exposure to the Washington apple industry. And that time, it was probably well, <laughs> much smaller than it is today. What? 50 million cartons, well, I suppose. I don't know how, how big it was. Yeah, they, I think they, their peak at that time was about 40 million cartons. And they can now easily do 140 million cartons. But that was mostly from small growers who were in, in fairly narrow, uh, hilly valleys uh, in the foothills of the Cascades. And that was before there was a lot of uh, expansion into the flatter land south of Yakima. And then more recently, in the last 20 years, well, really 30 years, uh, there's been tremendous expansion into the Columbia Basin. And Mm. so you've got bigger, bigger operators and uh, much more diversified. That's very fascinating, yeah, because um, in those years, uh, I mean, the varieties were limited. Just describe, you know, what it looked like to you you know, when you came into the onto the scene with the apple industry, uh, uh, I, I I I assume back then it was red and gold and delicious with maybe a little bit of Granny Smith, but really not much, not much no, variety. Not much. Diver- in fact, it was it was pretty much dominated by the red delicious, and then they had uh, Rome, a uh, small amount of Rome and wine sap. There, there was very little. Uh, late season storage. So they used white sap, which was a very uh, good storing apple uh, for later on in the season. And it was only, uh, I, I was involved in fact with some of the early studies of the market for Golden Delicious. So Golden Delicious really only began to grow in the early 1970s and then of course became the second largest variety. That's fascinating. I, I thought that that was a strong number two at that point, but it it, it actually grew in that decade. That's interesting. It, 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 that's right. Yeah. The um, so the the 
the scope of the industry has obviously changed. Uh, describe, and, and then as you went into the 80s, uh, a little bit more evolution, uh, uh, growth of, uh, you know, putting in more acreage perhaps, and Granny Smith variety but, came on the scene, and, and what was it like in the 80s for you? Yeah, but two things happened in the, in the 70s. First of all, there was a very severe freeze mm. in the late 1960s, and so an awful lot of the red delicious trees had to be pulled and they replaced them with higher quality, uh, better strains and so on. And so by the mid-1970s, they had a really good quality Red Delicious and a growing supply. Mm -hmm. And in 1977, uh, the market opened in Saudi Arabia as they began to uh, earn some of the revenue from the dramatic increase in oil prices. And then I believe in 78, the market opened in Taiwan. So by, by 1980, um, Washington was just, wasn't just supplying the domestic market. They had become really uh, uh, heavily invested in the export market, particularly in uh, those countries and then in other parts of Asia. Interesting, yeah. So, And then Mexico really wasn't a factor at that point, was it? it just No, no. Mexico, in fact, was closed. Um, Canada, Canada was probably the, the the best export market, but again, the Canadian industry was much bigger at that time, and so they didn't have the same need for uh, apples that they do now. Interesting, yeah. And uh, so you had the export element, uh, the red delicious variety, very strong. It was just the dominant variety. Um, and then the and, 80s. Like the they, 80s. They, uh, Granny Smith and Gala apples were starting to come along, uh, but uh, not 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 in any great volume. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Gala, Gala really came into its own in, in having commercial volume in the early 1990s. At the same time that Fuji came along, and about the same time they also introduced the Braeburn and the Jonico. So uh, they went suddenly from being. Uh, three traditional varieties to all these relatively new varieties, almost all of which had been developed over the past previous 20 to 30 years. And Gala came from, what is it, New Zealand? Is that where that was developed? Uh, well, it was, it was, yeah, it was developed, uh, it came from a chance seeding, I believe, in New Zealand. And the New Zealand research group, the Hort Research uh, folks, uh, they developed it and uh, worked on ways to store it better, harvest it better, and so on. And by the time they introduced it to the world market, it was a really an outstanding variety. <clears throat> and in fact, it's probably one of the varieties that has been most adaptable mm. to uh, all sorts of producing areas around the world. Mm, interesting, yes. And um, the the southern and, and uh, southern hemisphere production, you know, it, it comes into the U.S. in the summer. Um, That's right. They've, yeah. they've yeah. evolved as well, haven't they? They've from the Gala to the Honeycrisp to the Jazz yeah, and all they, that. Um, mm -hmm. They they were pretty much equal rivals of New Zealand, say in 1980. But with the development of these new varieties, New Zealand took a big jump ahead of the competition from the Southern Hemisphere in mm. the next 20 years. And for a while, they got tremendous prices. But then. Um, an awful lot of the growers in the northern hemisphere began to get smart and start to plant their own Gala and Fuji and Braeburn and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Jonico is very popular in some parts of Europe. So uh, 
the, the premium that New Zealand was getting uh, disappeared. And you had the and ability that, you had the ability to store apples uh, longer too, didn't you? With the one in MCP and some of the stores. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, MCP came along in the in the two thousands, but yes, there was tremendous uh, advances in the storage technology. Uh, the the first CA storage in Washington State uh, was only only came in about the 1960s. Uh, they learned the technology from uh, Cornell and from New York, uh, and uh, particularly as they began to export a lot more, they began to increase their use of CA. And indeed, the, the when I started in 1970, the season pretty much ended, other than for wine sap, by about the end of January. Uh, but with the CA storage, <clears throat> in, in the next 10 years, they, they could pretty much uh, supply product for 12 months a year. That's amazing that it ended in January. Yeah, that's something else. And, uh, um, yeah, the of course, uh, we, now we think of organic apples being a, a pretty big deal up in, the, in Washington State and the Northwest. And that wasn't the case when you started either, no, was no, it? No, or, organic, <clears throat> the... the, the idea of organic was coming in in the early 1970s but it was mostly small alternative growers and uh, it was a very difficult uh, transition to manage first of all you had a three years transition before you could sell the product as organic which a lot of small growers could couldn't uh, afford um, mm. and then it was technically quite challenging to uh, operate without the synthetic pesticides and since then, it's it's grown what to fifteen twenty percent of some growers in the area, right? Yeah, yeah. well, and uh, I think uh, last year it was somewhere around fifteen percent of the Washington production was in organic. Mm -hmm. But more and more of it is being handled by the larger operators because they can afford to have the the expertise on mm -hmm. chemicals and on entry standards and so on, all those that sort of thing. So uh, the bigger operators have done really well with organics and so all the big names like Stabil, Domax, Rainier and so on are among the leaders now in organic production mm -hmm. and in fact the, their success in that has made them less interested in the more risky export market so uh, over the last 10 years we've become more dependent on traditional Red Delicious and Gala to supply our export markets which is not the ideal way to go in in in, the, in what way? I guess you're saying that um, the turn toward organics maybe uh, there hasn't been as much variety innovation for exports, or just uh, it's been well the, the the export market has been mostly a, a price based market, uh -huh, uh -huh. very a very traditional based market, whereas uh, with the arrival of Walmart in the late 1980s. Uh, you've got more and more of this uh, managed uh, supplies uh, into the big retails, mm -hmm, retail mm -hmm. chain. And um, they they didn't want the cheaper Red Delicious in many cases. They wanted to introduce many of these newer varieties. And uh, our um, major marketers worked pretty closely with them in doing that, and as well as, of course, the Apple Commission, which was still in existence mm -hmm, up until mm -hmm. 2003, and the Apple Commission was really big in category management. So in mm -hmm. other words, they were given the the right to manage the entire retail, the entire uh, Apple section at many retail stores. 
which gave Washington a terrific advantage uh, at the retail level. But uh, so the the Alpha Commission was uh, terminated in 2003, and uh, <coughs> category management is less popular with the retailers too. They they want to do their own category management rather than have people like Dole or uh, uh, banana the banana food, uh, Del Monte bananas or Washington apples. Uh, manage their uh, produce sections for them. Interesting, but at the same time, they're involved with the replenishment, and uh, so suppliers are kind of plugged in in terms of what Walmart needs or, or what have you. But it's uh, but they're going to yeah, they're it, handling it's it. Pretty much, yeah, it's pretty much an open book now, Tom. As soon as the, uh, the crop forecast comes out from Washington. And in early August and then from the U.S. Apple Association meeting and all that information goes directly to the retailers so mm-hmm. the retailers and the suppliers both understand what sort of challenge they have put uh, what sort of varieties are going to be available and what the volume is and that tells them also what the likely price would be so they can set up their, uh, their uh, marketing programs for months ahead uh, depending on what the retailer wants yeah, and, and and really, apples is one crop where you once you have it under cover, it's going to be there, and you're going to be able to pack it and send it out, and and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It it it's still uh, there. Still is a a premium for varieties that can be produced early, and that was mm. one of the huge benefits that Honeycrisp had. That Honeycrisp can be picked in early September, as as can Gila. And so they get a huge leg up in the market each year by being there first with really good quality fruit. Uh, and that's one of the problems that Fuji and Cosmic Crisp, the newer variety of fish, that they're, they're not really available uh, in the early season when the competition is, is less difficult. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because Cosmic Crisp can be a, a later season. Of course, they've had volumes that are not real big yet, uh, but typically it maybe they say that it even eats better after it's been in storage a little bit right that's kind of the the thinking on it or yeah but i uh, say it uh, by the time you're selling uh, apples in may june you're starting to face the soft fruit competition the sweet cherry competition mm-hmm. watermelon you know there's an awful lot of competition for mm-hmm. the market mm-hmm. uh, as as the year drags on so there's a certain uh, there's a major advantage from being an early variety. Mm, interesting, yeah. So galas yeah. Are, are one of the honey honey crisp. I mean, they honey crisp and gala are the two big ones that are early. But then uh, some of the club varieties, uh, like sweet tango, are really early too. So they get an early season uh, boost uh, just by the, the low level of competition at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you really look at the the scope of the the apple industry up in the northwest and in Washington State, it's quite big. I mean, in terms of market domination, is it was it eighty percent of the U.S. fresh market, or what? What does it represent yeah, at this point? On on average, it's about seventy-two percent of the U.S. fresh market. But because of the way in which the eastern and Midwest folks market. Uh, Pretty much, Washington becomes the dominant domestic supplier from about May on. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, they do have some competition from the imports, but more and more those imports are uh, how would I call it? Uh, they're managed by the Washington marketing firms, All right, so yeah. they can bring in gala from New Zealand or from Chile when they're running low on on that variety, and they can do the same with many other varieties. When you think about the change, yeah. When so they're 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 kind of pulling the strings on on that uh, transition. There's so many uh, you know ch- you know differences in, in the market now compared to when you first came into the industry. Uh, I, I suppose as you've learned to see trends, um, we saw the variety proliferation and a lot of proprietary varieties. Uh, that's been fascinating to watch. Uh, of course, the rise of the Cosmic Crisp in terms of plantings and um, a lot to uh, a lot to consider as far as the the present and the future as well. What uh, any broad uh, observations? I guess is is what we might see. Well, in- I, I think one of the one of the huge changes uh, since I began working with the industry has been at the retail level. Mm. Uh, in, in 1970, there were two big retailers, a and and a and pretty much stayed in the eastern half of the country, and then Safeway, and Safeway pretty much stayed in the western half of the country. So they could beat up the suppliers independently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, now you have like a typical like Walmart, Kroger, Costco, they're in every region of the country and then of course in many foreign markets as well. Uh, so the, the big retailers are in much more competition with each other and as a result they are very demanding of the suppliers. And I would say that a was happy if you give it a price cut. A price cut. Uh, Walmart, Kroger, those guys, they want all sorts of they want good prices, of course, but they also want quality. They want delivery on time. They want all sorts of mm-hmm. certifications that you're not beating up the environment or your workers. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. It's, it's become a, that's become a very, very demanding uh, system for the suppliers here. And it's, it's, it's getting even tougher because not alone do you have the Walmarts and Kroger's and so on that are well established, but you you now have Aldi in the Midwest expanding pretty rapidly and expanding into the Southeast. And uh, now you have Little coming in with the same sort of uh, philosophy. Uh, and you have Costco with um, slightly different philosophy, but again, they go for a very limited number of, uh, of varieties. Mm-hmm. So you have really two classes of retailers, the, the expensive ones like Walmart and Kroger, handled many different varieties and then the, the limited assortment guys like Costco or Aldi only handle a very, very small number of varieties. So um, that makes uh, competing for space in those um, chains becomes really tough. Interesting, especially if you have a variety that maybe they're not interested in, right? If they, if they don't... Oh, that's for sure, yes. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and uh, with with their, their small selection, they do get... Um, focused in on just a certain number of a certain type of variety mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the uh, so that the, yeah the the buyer landscape has changed and and the marketers have changed as well the shippers there's probably been uh, concentr- more concentration in the the 
the shipping community as well, right? Compared to when you first started. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that, that's been largely in response to the concentration of the retail level. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of our apples, uh, sweet cherries and pears now, are marketed by uh, what I would call the, the integrated networks. In other words, they have a marketer, they have marketers, packers, and growers that are all work pretty closely together. Uh, the marketer gets the signal from the retailer mm-hmm. what variety, quality, and so on certifications is needed. Uh, passes that on to their affiliated packers, and then the affiliated packers um, pass those instructions on to the grower. So the grower, if the grower wants to survive today, the grower has to be responsive to what the retailer currently wants, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is tough when you have a, uh, a perennial crop like apples takes quite a few years to bring into production so if your if your variety mix isn't right uh, in 2021 it's going to take you five or six years to get it right mm-hmm. and a lot of the small growers can't afford that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and they're maybe they're betting on a couple of them and maybe or maybe they've waited too long to invest in new varieties so they can be at any any spot in the timeline, and it, they could be vulnerable, right? Yes, yes, they, they can be vulnerable, and then uh, because the the price varies pretty uh, rapidly with response to the volume that's put on the market. Uh, in a down year, they can get they can get into financial trouble very very easily. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned of course, the, the, the you mentioned the, said, go ahead. Sorry. sorry, sorry about that. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the Food Safety Modernization Act has put another uh, burden on the smaller grower because just keeping ahead of the paperwork uh, mm. is something that they find quite quite difficult to do. Whereas the larger operator, the uh, network operators, they, they can assign people full time to meet meet all those needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the you mentioned when you first came into the industry, you did a study on packaging cost i'm sure with inflation that's that's gone up but these these huge packing houses uh are are efficient in terms of the, the volume of fruit they handle i mean they, they're just immense aren't they now with, with the, yeah well the, the, the largest uh, packing house that we had in our study did six hundred thousand boxes a year uh-huh. uh, <laughs> certainly many of the existing ones can do that in one month Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's uh-huh. how much how much it has changed. Uh, the size isn't as important as it used to be because, um, for example, a number of the big packers now have a separate uh, packing house for their organic mm. because that that seems to make the retailers happy that the, there's no mixture between the organic and mm-hmm. the uh, conventional. Uh, but uh, but certainly if you if you're uh, packing conventional fruit, uh, economies of scale are really, really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, marketing to the consumer, to the retailer. I mean, there's a lot more, you know, digital media that the shippers can do, um, and and then, but introducing any variety is probably expensive, uh, and getting buy-in and getting enough momentum, right, is is a challenge and. That's fascinating because there's so many varieties uh, that are are out there. Yeah, I think the good fruit grower, when they did their their, their club uh, description,
description. I think they mentioned about 50 varieties uh, across the United States that are that are uh, recognized. And of course, there's a few others that are so small that they haven't yet uh, got the limelight. But yet there's probably 50 new varieties circulating right now in the U.S. And then there's another 50 or so circulating in Europe. And they're all... Um, trying to win some long-term support from consumers uh, and it's, uh, it's a very tough assignment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah the uh, the I guess that is uh, um, an interesting proposition I mean obviously Honeycrisp did it in a big way they've uh, really exploded and then you've got uh, you've got honey or you've got cosmic crisp who a variety that has uh, been uh, been adopted by many growers, so that's that's a, uh, a a variety too that we'll see a lot more of. And uh, I guess as as marketers are involved with that variety, it's not a. I mean, I guess it's not an exclusive variety to anybody. But but uh, how do you see that variety, you know, expanding its influence, and what does it need to do to kind of create real traction? Well, I, th- I think that um, one of the things that stood out this year was the lack of, of uh, market discipline. There, there was a lot of poor quality Cosmic Crisp that were placed on the market. Uh, they, uh, the regions are pretty picky about the size distribution that they want for varieties. Mm-hmm. And um, Cosmic Crisp had just way too many very large apples. Uh, and not enough of the small apples where they could get a, a good premium. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, the, 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 there's going to have to be some sort of uh, quality control uh, better than what it was in the, in the current year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think the the other the other big thing is what what will the consumer's reaction be. Because you, you probably remember going to many, many meetings where people talked about all the problems with growing Honeycrisp. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. And that was true, but when it got into the marketplace, so many different uh, age groups, income groups, and so on, really liked the Honeycrisp and were willing to pay a very substantial premium for it. So that was kind of, that was consumer choice at its uh, strongest, uh, that uh, helped Honeycrisp to grow the way it has grown. So I think uh, Cosmic Crisp has to pass that same test of uh, can it really win over a large number of consumers? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I suppose, and not just Cosmic, but all all the club varieties mm-hmm. face that same challenge. Yeah, exactly. And and with with the pandemic, I guess a lot of sampling was not done, so that probably slowed things down a little bit. But maybe that'll get back to uh, to what it used to be. So that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, they, they've just begun, uh, I know Costco has just begun, and uh, I believe uh, Sam's Club have begun to do demos again. Mm, right, right. What, uh, you know, when you look at the, I mean, being an international observer, uh, how does the, you know, where where the U.S. is, where Washington State is with apples, how does it compare with with other areas in the world, and are, are we looking pretty good in terms of our competitive position compared to other countries? Well, from the, from the production side, packing, marketing, 
Washington State probably is right up there among the top competitors in the world. Uh, we have we've got a huge advantage uh, that I don't know any other, maybe Turkey, but no other uh, major apple producer has got the outside of the Columbia Basin. You know this huge flat area mm-hmm. that is still heavily into, into uh, field crops, but that could be if the water were available, it could be adapted for fruit growing. So Washington State, of course, the the, the climate is is ideal for growing prickly uh, apples and sweet cherries, uh, probably as good as climate anywhere in the world. So uh, Washington has terrific advantages from that side. The, 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 the problem they're having right now is market access. Right. Because with all with all the trade disputes uh, and uh, the, the WTO was supposed to police uh, uh, unfair trading practices, and it's pretty much lost its uh, uh, mojo over the last few years. Uh, so as long as that continues, uh, and as long as we're in trade disputes, with, we're still in disputes with China. There's one kind of still tempered uh, taking over with Mexico um, many of the countries like Indonesia take uh, the law into their own hands and create temporary obstacles um, mm-hmm. that's where we really are struggling is that uh, uh, apples are a very low priority with the trade negotiators for the United States mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in some other countries it would be a much higher priority so we do have, uh, we're fighting an uphill battle uh, in the international markets. And with um, 30% of our apples, pears, and sweet cherries going to inter- international markets every year, those are really, really important to the, the profitability of the growers. Yeah, and I guess we assume the things just kind of um, continue on as, you know, but you're right. There's obstacles. There's obstacles to going to China. There's obstacles in, you know, various Asian markets. So uh, Mexico has been a big market, but are they are they becoming protectionist, or what's their what's the future of trade with Mexico? Do you think? Well, <laughs> we we signed NAFTA about 1994, I believe, and probably every two or three years since, uh, Mexico has put up. Uh, some sort of anti-dumping uh, uh, complaint. Uh, we haven't had any for the last three or four years, but they had, they had a, a, a complaint about uh, uh, President Bush's uh, trucking uh, rules. Right. So uh, Mexico is a great market, a great, great market, very close, but uh, and it's our best single market. But um, you never know when. They may pull another of those uh, uh, called, uh, blockages of trade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know when um, when you look back on your career, you you stayed with uh, WSU, and of course you've got your own firm in the past um, many years. But uh, what do you think it was that kept you there, and um, what have you enjoyed about just your work up, up there in Washington State? Well, uh, there are really two states that have uh, got the sort of agriculture potential uh, that Washington. One is California, which of course is massive, 
and then Washington is just a, a, a terrific state, particularly for production of Apple's Pears and Sweet Cherries. Uh, and of course, the, the climate here is so much more, uh, more kind than the climate in California. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's been a very attractive environment to work. And also, um, with the growth, as I say, during my career, the Apple people have gone from 40 million boxes to 140 million. The cherries have probably grown even faster than that. So, you know, it's great to be associated with the growth industry because it tells you that they're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I did some work in, um, uh, in, in Ireland on, on the beef industry. And as you know, beef, you know, the cholesterol and all sorts of other problems, the fat, uh, it's been an uphill battle for the, the cattleman uh, to try and keep holding on to consumer confidence. And of course, uh, uh, every um, better eating group uh, is down on the, on the animal products. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's where it's, it's been great to work with uh, products that are generally accepted to be really good for your health. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you've had a um, a great uh, window to uh, expanding production, and and really um, the the varieties that have been developed or improved over you know decades ago. So you've been a part of that process. That's fascinating. What I know you uh, you know nobody really knows what what's ahead, but maybe looking ten or twenty years down the road, what type of uh, Changes do you think we'll see in the industry? Uh, what what type of uh, evolution is possible? I guess. Well, no, no question that the concentration in the industry is going to increase, and um, there, there's just going to be a lot more outside investors. That the local management will probably be left in place. But uh, everything that I hear it, it says that the industry is going to be look quite different in five years' time than it currently does now. Uh, and those those outside investors will be the ones that will have to make the decisions about uh, do we go with the old varieties or we do we invest a lot of money in new varieties and how do we keep up with the te- the te- technological needs for the industry? Um, yeah, it's it's going to be quite a different industry in the next five years. Interesting. I mean, you mentioned technology, and of course, everybody's waiting on. Uh, robotic harvesting, uh, is that something we'll see in five years or is it going to be a little farther down the road? Uh, again, a little bit of history. Uh, the, the first project that we had that, uh, on the apple packing was funded by the Tree Food Research Commission, which was set up specifically to find uh, mechanical harvesters. Yeah. And that's only 50 years ago. Uh, yeah. So we uh-huh. still haven't found so, uh, it, it might be a little uh, uh, dangerous to predict that we will soon have them, but I think we're—I think the technology is advancing so rapidly that probably we're going to have uh, automated harvesting within the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. That'll that'll change some things, then, right? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and more and more the um, the industry, you know, precision agriculture, artificial intelligence. All those things that you talk about in making herb plants and so on are going to be applied in the fruit industry. 
so the technology is going to again change very very dramatically over the next few years yeah yeah and it may be uh, I don't know what it's like for the typical grower up there I mean probably when you came into the you know systems and university it, what would be the average uh, acreage of a I'm an apple grower. Is that has that? Yeah. Uh, the the average was thirteen acres. Oh yeah. So and uh, I mean that that's that's a garden plot today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, generally the the uh, the growers that are in it for commercial purposes, there you're talking about five hundred acres mm. minimum. And, Mm-hmm. Uh, the the uh, USDA census shows an awful lot of small acreage, like two, three acres, but they're they're not really relevant to the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The industry is pretty much dominated by these large expanses of acreage. It's amazing. It's really impressive to see up there, but uh, yeah. it's yeah. it's it's the scale of it, and a lot of it. I mean, and it's not it's not cheap to put in a, in those. The uh, all this trellis and the support that you need around a uh, apple orchard. Yeah, and, and the um, you know you mentioned the mechanical harvester or automated harvesting. Um, they're already trying to re-focus uh, the architecture of the orchards to make it more uh, comfortable for mechanical harvesting. So, uh, the, the just even in the orchard, the um, Every new new technology means they've got to change their operation somehow. Mm. Uh, you know, another big one is the the, the covers to for, to reduce uh, sun sun sunburn and uh, protect from birds and insects. But uh, as you know, they anytime you put a cover on, it also changes the environment under the cover. So mm-hmm. uh, the grower and the extension folks have to adapt to this slightly changed environment. So uh, each new technology is bringing a whole new set of challenges. I never thought about that. I guess just a little bit cooler, maybe, or just whatever is yes. changed. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. it, yeah and, it, and it does tend to be a little more humid. So, uh, and of course, if if climate change um, uh, continues, then we're we're going to have uh, more challenges in, in mm. trying to control the environment for the fruit. Mm, that's. And it certainly seems to be a big concern everywhere, right? The, the, the fact that it... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we've been kind of fortunate. Maybe I'm not sure it's fortunate or unfortunate, but um, climate change has not appeared to be very, um, what we call, noticeable in Washington State until quite recently. Whereas, you know, in, in places in Central Europe, uh, they have no... Or, or South Africa... They have noticed their seasons moving by a month uh, forward. For example, yeah, another spring, the bloom and so on is a month earlier than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, Oh my goodness, yeah. So uh, if we we have to face that sort of climate change, uh, we have even more uh, adjustments to make. Mm. And when you see it changing up there right now, is it... Is it where it's getting a little warmer at certain times of the year, maybe than it used to be, or is it is that part part of it? Yeah, it appears since since the say in the last five or six years, it's been quite a lot warmer and drier um, 
during the harvest period, during the pre-harvest and harvest mm -hmm. period mm -hmm. than it has been in the past. Uh, and so we, we added another complication because the dry conditions led to more fires and the fires lead to difficulty for your pickers and um, I know the, the wine grape people feel that it contaminates the wine and so on. So um, the, the problems don't ever end. They just change. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's amazing. Uh, well, Desmond, it's good to good to visit. You've had such a span of of a career that's still going on. And, and you're, what's your involvement like now in terms of of the industry? Are you still working and doing some things with the apple industry? Just do do a small amount of work, mostly by choice. So uh -huh. if if I get a call for, for on a particular problem, I will work on it. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've scaled back my work a lot but the, the the last thing I would want to say is that uh, I have nothing but admiration for the men and women of the fruit industry in, in Washington State and I'm sure it would apply to all of agriculture they they just are so indomitable they've taken on so many challenges over the years that I've been working with the industry and continue to be optimistic about the future and to continue to try and sell their products around the world. I mean, it's, it, it, it's truly remarkable and inspiring to be around those sorts of people for all my career. Mm, you're right, you're right, because they, they take, take on those challenges and they've dared to dream big, so it's uh, yes. gotten, them, uh -huh. gotten them amazing places. So, Well, Desmond, great to visit. I, uh, I know uh, I've, I've sure appreciated your insight over the years, and, and thank you for today, and thank you for sharing a little bit about about your perspectives. Well, thanks for inviting me, Tom. Appreciate talking to you. That wraps us up for today. In case you're new here, the podcast name is Tip of the Iceberg because this is just a taste of our coverage of the wonderful world of fresh produce. You can check us out on thepacker.com and producemarketguide.com and all over social media, particularly LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, a few recent episodes you may want to add to your library. We talked recently with the folks at Auburn University about how students are growing produce hydroponically in shipping containers to supply campus dining. And we also spoke with Stonehill Produce CEO Keith Slattery about how the company is using market information as a way to bring unique value to its customers. So thanks as always for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. <laughs>